Life After Bresco miniseries part four, funding adjudication brought by insolvent companies. You're listening to Outlook, one of the commercial construction and international arbitration podcast series brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome. This is the fourth podcast in a series dealing with the practical implications of Michael J. Lonsdale Electrical Limited against Bresco Electrical Services Limited in liquidation at 2020 UKSC 25. For those seeking to enforce or resist enforcement of adjudication claims brought by insolvent companies post Bresco. I'm David Sortel and I'm joined by Marion Smith QC, uh, John Dennis Smith, and Rebecca Drake. We are all members of the commercial and construction team at 39 Essex Chambers, and we're all experienced in adjudication and adjudication enforcement proceedings. In this episode, we discuss some of the issues that arise relating to the funding of adjudication enforcement proceedings brought by insolvent companies. Let's just have a very quick recap. In the Supreme Court decision in Lonsdale and Bresco, the Supreme Court took a different approach to the TCC and the Court of Appeal and decided, firstly, adjudicators had jurisdiction to determine construction disputes brought by insolvent companies, and secondly, allowing such adjudications was not an exercise in futility. We have had the first significant High Court first instance decision. John Doyle Construction Limited in liquidation and Erith Contractors Limited, 2020, EWHC 2451. This refused enforcement of an adjudicator's decision where the claimant was in an insolvent liquidation. Now, before John Doyle became publicly available, his Honour Judge Parfit, uh, sitting in the County Court at Central London, uh, ruled in Styles and Wood Limited in administration against GECIF Trustees Limited on the 4th September 2020, where he also grappled with the issues. He accepted the security offered by the joint administrators and enforced the adjudicator's decision in favour of the insolvent company. Now, this case is different from the others in that the claim had not been assigned to a third-party litigation funder. In this case, I'll give you a quick review of the scenario we are going to use in these podcasts. And the focus for this particular session is the involvement of a third party funding the litigation. Sparky Limited, we'll refer to them as Sparky, is a subcontractor. Sparky is engaged by a company called Employerco Limited, we'll call that Employerco, to construct three retail parks under similar contracts each of which provides for adjudication under the Scheme for Construction contracts. Sparky entered insolvent liquidation in 2017. It has money claims in relation to two of the three retail parks, or refer to them as retail parks two and three, and Employerco has now raised issues in relation to all of those retail parks. The liquidators, believe that the claims against Employerco were risky and they did not wish to pursue them. They have assigned the claims to a company called Calculus Limited, we'll call that Calculus, on terms that Calculus will retain 40% of any sums recovered from Employerco after costs. Sparky, supported by Calculus, commenced an adjudication in respect of Retail Park 3. It obtained a declaration that it is entitled 
to an order for payment of £350,000 in January 2018. Sparky has issued proceedings to enforce the decision for a judgment in the sum of £350,000. Sparky seeks the usual expedited TCC directions for the enforcement of an adjudicator's decision by way of summary judgment. The focus of this session is on the agreement between Sparky and Calculus. But why? Why are we even interested in arguments about the funding agreement, that charity and maintenance and abusive process? In order to fund the costs of these claims, liquidators have sought to assign the claims or otherwise use third-party funders. And the funder's business model has been to use a damages-based agreement. That provides for the funder to receive a percentage of the sums ultimately recovered. Certain types of these agreements are subject to statutory restrictions. Uh, importantly, restrictions as to the percentage recovery that is allowed. And for the purposes of our discussion today, it's, it's 50% that we're going to have to focus on. In Meadowside Buildings Development Limited and 12 to 18 Hill Street Management Company, summary judgment was refused by Adam Constable QC sitting as a Deputy High Court judge. He refused it because there was at least a realistic prospect of showing that the funding agreement was illegitimate so as to be an abuse of the process. And if you're, have you set yourself up in that way, it was argued with success that a party can't bring itself within an exception to the ordinary position of a company in liquidation and cannot enforce an adjudicator's decision. I think it's important to note from the outset that that finding was largely due to the fact that the funders refused to disclose the terms of the funding agreement in Medicide. And that position has changed, as we can see in the subsequent cases. We don't know what was the percentage recovery in Medicide, but the obvious inference is that it was more than 50%. So we're now, as Mr Justice Fraser said, embarking upon a varied and rich legal landscape, and we're having to think about Champerty maintenance and the damages-based agreements regulations. Uh, Marion, is Medicide now the main decision? It's the main decision for the moment because since then it has not been the main factor. It was the determinative factor in Medicide, the funding arrangements. It was hardly looked at in Balfour Beatty. It was considered in slightly more detail in Erith, but it was not the basis upon which Mr Justice Fraser made his findings. What was the basis, Marion, for submitting that the funding agreement in Meadows was illegitimate? So how does the argument run? Is it simply whether or not it's a regulated agreement? You've got to think about two things. You start by thinking about simple champerty. Do you have a funding agreement which will leave the claimant as the party not primarily interested in the result of the litigation? That typically will be champertous. You will also, because of the business model that is being used, need to consider the damages-based agreements regulations. Do you have an agreement which is theoretically within the scope of those regulations? And if it is, does it comply with them? So, Marion, what practically does EmployerCo in our scenario need to consider in order to assess whether the funding arrangement is governed by the damages-based agreement regulations? You're going to look at two aspects of it. You're going to look at calculus. Who are calculus? 
and what is it doing? You're also going to look at Sparky and you're going to consider what is Sparky agreeing to pay. In this case, we know that we have got an agreement to pay something less than 50%. But we are going, we know very, very little about the other element of it, the position of calculus. What's your view? Can we even begin to make an assessment as to whether calculus is providing relevant services? What we're going to need to consider is, are they providing advocacy services, litigation services, or claims management services? Those are the three types of services that trigger the application of the regulations. Whether they are or are not is going to be fact sensitive, a a phrase that lawyers love to use. So what are we going to look at? Well, we'll start by the with Uncle Google, don't we always? Let's go to the website. Let's see what we can work out on behalf of our client from there. We're obviously going to ask Sparky and Calculus for a copy of the documents recording the relationship that must be in place between them. And that will, of course, address both of the questions, what are Calculus doing and what is Sparky doing? Don't forget to consider if you've got an assignment of the cause of action, whether that assignment is legitimate. Is it permitted by the terms of the underlying contract? And what are the consequences if it's not? The decision as to whether or not calculus is providing advocacy services, litigation services or claims management services is one that it's too difficult to call without knowing the terms of that agreement. We know in Medicide that the view was that they plainly were, the funder plainly was. But we've also got, 18 days later, after the decision in Medicide, the Competition Appeals Tribunal, another High Court judge, in UK Trucks Claims Limited and Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, a decision in 2019, ruling that the activities of a third-party litigation funder do not constitute claims management services and therefore do not fall within the scope of the regulation. And that just highlights the fact that it is a highly fact-sensitive decision. So, Marion, what happens if it is caught by the damages-based agreement regulations? You're going to have to consider all of the uh, regulations and the requirements and the restrictions that are imposed upon these agreements. The main one for the purposes of the adjudication enforcement decisions has been the percentage As I said at the outset, it's 50% for these sorts of claims. That's what we're going to have to think about. I'm not going to call now whether or not the calculus arrangement does fall foul. It's been beautifully drafted by David Sortel. He's hardly told us anything other than it's 40%, which is tantalisingly below, but we don't know how the 40% will ultimately be calculated and whether or not you end up with a recovery which is in excess of the bar. Got to see the agreement. If the agreement is caught but not compliant with the regulations, then it will be held to be champetous. That's the effect of the Meadows decision. If the agreement is not caught or is compliant with the regulations, then the court will still consider champerty. But of course, the simple route into a finding of champerty is to find that it is caught by the regulations and it is non-compliant. But I suspect that the funding market, which is a sophisticated market, has already gone back and addressed the terms of its funding arrangements so as to avoid this complication. 
So, Marin, we have two concepts. We have champity on the one hand, and we have abusive process on the other. Is funding litigation by a champitous agreement of itself an abusive process? No, it's not. If it's champitous, that of itself is not an abuse of the process. There's no presumption that it's an abuse of the process. That's clear from the decision in Meadowside. What you've got to look at, to use an expression that Mr Justice Fraser in Erith didn't like, was an element of litigation trafficking. And I can understand why he says that's not an appropriate phrase to, to use now. You're looking for wanton and efficient, officious intermeddling. And you've got no clear, bright line that you can draw to say this is and this isn't. What will happen is that the court will look at everything. It will, it will look at the terms of the funding agreement, the relationship between the litigant and the funder apart from the funding agreement, whether or not, and if so, how the litigant proposes to repay the funder, the relationship between the fund provided, the sum, to, if any, to be repaid and the sums at issue, and the precise purpose for which the fund was provided. Those are just the indications from the current cases. It will obviously look at all the circumstances. So let me wrap up. As our scenario demonstrates, whether you're acting for or against a company in liquidation, bringing an adjudication or seeking to enforce an adjudication, consider the funding arrangements carefully. Ultimately, if the company, company in insolvency is successful, they will probably have to be disclosed. And any form of return to the funder based on a percentage of the proceeds needs to be considered in relation to the damages-based agreements regulations 2013. 50% is your benchmark. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.